Hello and welcome to episode number 269 of the Armin Show podcast. So many. We stopped counting at some point, but I'm still counting. Welcome to this show. On this one, we have author of the book, Samsung Rising, the inside story of the South Korean giant that set out to beat Apple and conquer tech and the maker of most of my products that I've had for many years, Jeffrey Kane. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Armin. This is a great thing. Now, I will point out just in that fact, I've had I have an S9 Plus, I had an S6, I had a Samsung Droid Charge, I have a Samsung printer, I used to have a Samsung monitor. Samsung has been in my existence, and that's part of what interested me in the book in the first place. You have written about a variety of topics related to Asian and East Eastern culture content. What led you into that category in the first place when you started? So um, I was a foreign correspondent for a long time. Yes, so I was in Silicon Valley and then I was in East Asia, like you said. So um, I was covering Korea, Japan, Southeast Asia, China. I was um, first in East Asia about 10 years ago. So this was in 2008, 2009, around the time of the, the Asian, uh, or sorry, the, the financial crisis of 2008. And I was a correspondent there. So I was in Korea one day, and uh, I could tell you a little bit how I got into Samsung. It was mm -hmm. um, that I was covering Korea already. So I was there as a journalist. I was a correspondent. I was at The Economist, and then I was at Time Magazine. And then for a while, I was a freelancer. And one day, I got an email. It was an email from um, this editor at Fest Company Magazine, which is a, a tech magazine based in New York. And they said, hey, we're going to do a big story on Samsung. Samsung is a Korean company, and they made it clear most people think that Samsung is a Japanese company, but it's actually Korean, and they said, of course, you know that because you live in Korea. Of course, you know, I did know that, but uh, they just wanted to make it clear that this was a major multinational technology supplier that made everything from smartphones, displays, TVs, semiconductors. Uh, even in, within Korea, they made apartment blocks, um, they were making microwaves, they were running a, a credit card company, financial company. I mean, they were doing so much stuff out there that uh, a lot of the world doesn't see. And of course, I got this, this commission for this story, and I was thinking, oh, wow, this is really interesting. So I know that Samsung is Korean, but I didn't realize just how much they do and how much they matter to um, Korean society. So... Um, Koreans call their country the Republic of Samsung. And that actually, you know, it, like it sounds kind of ridiculous. I mean, would America be the United States of Apple or the United States of Amazon? And, you know, I mean, Amazon is big enough now that maybe we could call America the United States of Amazon. Jeff Bezos is some kind of, you know, lord who just controls the White House. You know, who, who knows? But, but over there, uh, it's just at another level, and it's just at another level because one company within the Samsung group, which is Samsung Electronics, makes up one-fifth of the entire economy uh, of the GDP of Korea, uh, the exports of South Korea, which is just incredible to me. I mean, I is there any American company or European company out there where we have one company and they're supplying one-fifth of, of all the exports from that company? It's just, it's totally... Ridiculous. It's not just now, but even if you go back in history and look at, you know, America 50 years ago or Germany 40 years ago, back when Germany was an industrial power, you never find a, a single company that does something on that level. And that's what I found incredible. So um, 
I got this story and I had this offer. I am going to tour the Samsung headquarters for a few days. And I spent um, these days interviewing some of the top executives, some of the top, you know, executive vice presidents, vice presidents, other groups of people. Um, it really was something that was just never, it was like a never ending series of interviews where they told me about how great this company is and how much they love Samsung and Samsung is a part of Korea. But the thing that I found so fascinating about this was that just a few months earlier, the chairman of Samsung, a man named Lee Kun-hee, who's sort of like the Jeff Bezos of Korea, was uh, pardoned by the South Korean president for tax evasion charges released. Um, he had been tried for corruption, bribery, uh, breach of trust for tax evasion. He was found guilty on the tax evasion charge, and he was just being let off so he never went to prison but the the south korean president gave him a pardon and said you need to run samsung because samsung is korea and the greatness the the glory of korea rests on the glory of samsung itself and um so you know i'd be touring the samsung headquarters just you know it's like five months after this happened after this pardon happened and this guy you know so this the, the chairman of samsung is a convicted criminal I mean, it's just like, it's like, and he's the chairman of Samsung. And I would ask executives at Samsung about him. So what do you think about the chairman? He was convicted of all these crimes. What do you think about all this? And they literally said, the chairman created a miracle. The chairman created this new society for us. The chairman created this glory, created this company that we built. Like he, he laid down the vision and we built Samsung as a major dynastic firm that simply cannot be replicated anywhere else. That we are, they're innately superior. We are, you know, it's Korea, it's Samsung. We are, you know, a part of, and, and uh, literally Samsung executives would say this to me off the record, like I wouldn't be recording and we'd be meeting in coffee later and they'd say, well, you have to understand our race. The Korean race is something that you know you have to understand that we're innately somehow superior and pure and we understand how to build a business and i was just you know running around i, I mean i i just found this so it, it was just a mixture of hilarity and like I, I don't know like like amusement i was just like what like i mean what like would you walk around i mean i've never walked around a company before and people are talking about the master race and how like the, the race is something that's pure and gen genteel and we need to understand the Korean people. Like, would you go to Apple and, you know, Steve Jobs would be saying, oh, the, uh, the American people have built this company. The, the American people built the iPhone and I control the White House and I can call Donald Trump anytime I like and that's just that. So... I got a kick out of this company. I was thinking, wow, you know, this place, like they're really successful, but they're kind of funny and they're a little bit weird, a little bit strange. And I want to write a book about this company because this company is just so massive. I mean, just so incredibly like, um, like, I mean, they're, they're one of the biggest technology companies in the world. The second most profitable after Apple. Um, they are the company that supplies everything, semiconductors, displays, um, they make the televisions. Like basically, if you're an American walking around LA or Chicago or New York, there's a good chance that in your pocket somewhere, in your home, you're, you're covered in Samsung 
products. I mean, you're covered in either the, the chips or, or whatever, the silicon, the, the glass. Uh, there's so much that you're basically covered in. And you're basically like a Samsung automaton, but we don't actually realize it because Samsung doesn't have the brand power of a company like Amazon or Apple or, or one of those other firms. So I, I set out to write this book, but I didn't want to write it like a typical business book. You know, like I, I think, you know, when I was approaching publishers, publishers would say, oh, you want to write your, like your base in Korea and you want to write a book about Samsung. So why don't you do a book about Apple versus Samsung? How about you know, start the book and Steve Jobs releases the iPhone and then Samsung releases the Galaxy and then there's a fight and then they sue each other and then, you know, it's like at the end, somebody wins, somebody loses and there are some business lessons to draw. But my response to that was absolutely not. I'm not writing a book like that because you have to understand that you can't, you can't understand East Asia, you can't understand Samsung, Sony, Huawei, any of these major firms just by looking at... Um, you know, like American business culture that, you know, East Asian business culture is so different. I want to tell the story of a dynasty. So I want to tell the story of a company that's more like Succession or Game of Thrones or, you know, one of these major television dramas and not just like Apple. It's not Steve Jobs running around, you know, creating his genius iPhone and people just kind of do what he says. This is the story of a major power struggle within a family dynasty, which is the Lee dynasty of Korea, enormously influential, wealthy, it's the wealthiest family of Korea. And I wanted to tell a story about this family and how they built a company that also happened to build a nation and define a nation so much that Koreans called it the Republic of Samsung. So that was my goal in this book. And just to answer your question, I'm, maybe I'm, I'm going a little long here, but that was the whole idea behind what I was doing, that I wanted to show that, you know, like what we experience, you know, you and me being in America, like we're Americans and we, we go to the local Best Buy or we go on Amazon.com, we just buy products and, you know, we, we load up Uber and, you know, Travis Kalanick at Uber is designing his own thing and disrupting the industry. Samsung, Korea, and a lot of East Asia, it's not like that at all. It's completely a different story. It's the story of a kingdom and a castle and a dynasty, and they're trying to wrest power from each other and build their empire to, you know, they, they want to, like, like these rival families in Korea from these different companies, they want to slay each other and they want to come out the victor, and that's that. It's not about building the, the new product. It's not about building the iPhone or the latest car. It's about drama. It's about politics, and, and that's really the story here. I did notice that when I was looking in your content, I like that you focused on people right from the beginning of the book and how they connect to each other. It's like a network. You wouldn't normally look at a company first based on like the people involved. A few of the things you mentioned there, I like that you just reminded me of when Jack Ma from Alibaba is Chinese, but he was talking with Elon Musk and he described he said artificial intelligence well we'll call ai alibaba intelligence we can't understand it was sort of like a, the miracle thing there's definitely like a miracle concept where like they made it and we're just going to go with this miracle but it's it's manageable there's less of like uh it's sort of like there's a genius and then there are just the others concept at play and then the other thing that came to mind is you reminded me of when i was reading your book um it's author Kerry McClelland who wrote Silicon City. I don't know if you know of him, but he also did a lot of interviews, but that was about San Francisco. And so he checked that region through interviews. Sometimes you can find out a lot by checking all the people involved. What, what were some of your first 
takeaways when you started doing interviews with the people inside of the company? What was the first like, oh, this is what's happening? So, um, my, I, I guess, uh, you know, like there, there was a lot going through my head. There wasn't a single thing. And actually that's, it's a good question because it's a broad question and, you know, it's, it's a, it's a question that I think that would have a lot of answers, you know, like depending on who you ask. But in my case, um, what was going through my head was, well, first of all, you know, I am a big proponent of the interview approach, you know, that um, we can, you know, we can learn a lot more by talking to people and by hearing the full narrative than, in my opinion, um, simply gathering data, simply, you know, putting together a data set and saying, well, you know, we're going to do a, a data set of a thousand employees and, and 800 of them said this and 200 said that, and we're going to draw our conclusions from it. Um, I don't want to create a straw man and just punch down the, the data approach. It does have a lot of relevance and a lot of importance in the modern world of business writing and business journalism. Um, but I find that um, one really good interview with somebody who is, you know, maybe an insider executive at a big business like Samsung or Apple is worth more uh, than, you know, maybe a 500 person data set that's passed around Apple by a researcher and they're answering their preferences. And the reason for that is because one, um, one, one really well-placed person at a company like Samsung or Apple has access to all the key players. And so, you know, when you interview that one really well-placed person, you're basically interviewing, you know, 20 well-placed people too, because they've been in the meetings and they know what people are saying and, you know, they know what's going on. So uh, when I was going through Samsung to answer your question, question and you know doing these interviews yeah I, I guess what I was thinking was well first of all these are official interviews and I'm grateful to have them because basically um, you know I, uh, I like I I'm, I'm interviewing this one person but basically I'm getting the the official Samsung view on what Samsung is and what Korea is and that's not something that you get easily like a lot of these big firms it's Samsung I mean, it could be a lot of companies GE IBM um, you know, Facebook, Uber, Lyft, whatever. I mean, they, they tend not to like guys like me. They don't really like journalists that much because they want to tell their own story. And they often don't need guys like me because they can just go on Twitter and Facebook and, you know, write what they want. And it's the public relations department that writes it. Like, they, why would they choose, you know, a middleman journalist to listen to it, to filter it, and to, you know, write the story in their own way, in a way that maybe, you know, they, they don't want it to be told, or maybe there's some information out there that they just don't like. They, they would rather rely on their own advertising to promote the company. Um, so that's why, you know, I, I'm like talking to these guys at Samsung, and I was just thinking, oh, wow, this is, uh, this is pretty cool, because it's a major company, it's one of the biggest in the world, and it seems to run this entire country of South Korea. And yet... Um, it's just like, I, I mean, it's just like, like it runs, like these people are like, they're running South Korea, but I'm just, I, I was just aghast at what they were saying. Cause I mean, they, they like, to be frank, uh, I mean, they, they sounded like, like, I, I don't even know what the word would be to describe it, but they, I mean, they did, they just sounded like, uh, you know, fascists or something. And I, I hate to say that word fascist to describe like a corporate executive. I, I know that maybe that's not the fairest word to describe their views, but it's like the, the way that they're praising the chairman of Samsung, the way that they're praising the company and praising the country, 
Um, it, I mean, it sounded as if they were appointed by the Korean government to run Samsung and not just by the company itself. So, it, I mean, that, that's what was going through my head. Like, you know, this is kind of this strange, you know, it's almost this um, Philip K. Dick novel. It's like Blade Runner or 1984, and I'm going in this mega corporation, and it's like, it's like the evil corporation, you know, that rules the world, and there's the evil CEO who's sitting behind his desk, you know, smoking an expensive cigar and has these expensive rings on. And he's telling me about, you know, Korea and like why Korea is great and why he's going to make Korea so awesome. So, you know, I, I know, I mean, maybe it's like, it's like, it's, it's an eccentric answer, but it's, I mean, every time I tell this story about my own experience with Samsung, I just, I feel like I'm reliving some kind of strange fairy tale, like an Alice in Wonderland where you enter this company that's so powerful and, um, you know, I was just getting deeper and deeper and deeper, and it was stranger and stranger everywhere I went. It was just like, this company is just so influenced by, you know, the, the uh, World War II in Japan. You know, Japan is a major power, and yet professes to be some kind of, like, Korean corporation um, that, that runs Korea, but it's, it's essentially borrowing other ideas from Apple and Sony and all these companies. So it, it, it like, I, I mean, I wish I could be more succinct and, and, you know, maybe answer that in a shorter way, but I, I just got this feeling like, wow, I mean, this is something else. It's totally different and it's totally bizarre. And that's why I'm going to write a book about it. Mm -hmm. You saw it from an external perspective and you weren't like a press secretary for their company in a way. Now, one thing that comes to mind is it is titled that set out to beat Apple and conquer tech. What are some hurdles that Samsung has come across in battling or competing with Apple to come out where they are right now? So much. There's so much there. So Samsung is a company that was built on the factory floor. It's a manufacturing firm. It's a firm that loves, um, absolutely loves the teamwork, the culture of militarism. And I say militarism, meaning a top-down. There's a general up top, and the soldiers execute the vision of the general who wants to build the phone or, or whatever, the fax machine. Um, Samsung is one of these companies that's ultimately, at its core, a manufacturer. Um, whereas Apple, I think at its core is a firm that is a, uh, it's a designer. It's a design firm. Um, the, the design of the phone itself or the Macintosh or whatever, and the design of the operating system, the, the user experience, um, that trumps the manufacturing. The, the, so Johnny Ive, until recently, the head of design at Apple, he would be the one calling the shots. You know, he'd be sitting there with Steve Jobs, and they would call the factory Foxconn, which manufactured iPhones and that's a Taiwanese company and they say this is how we're gonna make it and that's that whereas if you were to look at Samsung the culture is reversed it would be that the people originally at the factory who are making the semiconductors and making the parts would uh, call the guys who are making the smartphones and say hey you know we have uh, this great new semiconductor coming out this new OLED display and why don't we put it in the new product, like the new smartphone, the new whatever, sell it to somebody else, sell it to Nokia, sell it to Apple. The component makers and the hardware engineers are the ones who control the process, whereas at Apple, it's the designers and the creatives and the UX guys who basically design everything, design the product itself. Um, so 
when you look at a war, an iconic war like Apple versus Samsung, which, by the way, I think is going to go down in our century as maybe one of the most iconic business battles um, in recent history, like on par with Coke versus Pepsi. You know, it's it's going to be one of those big ones that people are always going to look back and say, oh, wow, they're going to say that Apple versus Samsung thing. That was insane because it cost so much money to both sides and, and neither side actually won. Um, and one of the reasons either side won is because they both had enormously different strategies and enormously different outlooks on how business should be run and how business should be done. And it's like what I said before about, you know, Apple versus Samsung. They're both, you know, hardware versus design, manufacturing versus design. So uh, when you're in a manufacturing company, you're on the, this constant cycle of, you know, new updates, like new products that need, that need to come out. Whereas when you're at a design company like Apple, you can create one design in, say, the year 2007, and that sets the DNA for every single iPhone that's going to come out for the next, two, uh, next 10 years. You know, like every iPhone has basically looked the same. There haven't been many changes you know, like since 2007 when Steve Jobs first uh, announced it, like there are some, but it's not that different. Whereas if you look at, you know, Samsung phones, there's a zillion options. Um, you know, there are like every year, you know, there are something, it's like eight new galaxies and, you know, like 20 new semiconductors. I mean, there, there's a never ending pile of products coming out from Samsung. So what that does at a company like Samsung is it, it naturally creates this culture of we have to meet the next deadline. We have so many products to put out. And so we have to, like, we have to find the other guy and we have to imitate them or maybe even copy them. So in the case of Samsung, they looked at Apple, like, they actually were not taking the iPhone that seriously at first. Um, but after the Korean government lifted this ban on the iPhone, it was a protectionist measure. It was lifted in 2009. Suddenly there were all these iPhones coming into Korea and Samsung executives were looking at that and saying, oh crap, we're in trouble. There are all these iPhones here and they're really like cool, like young people like them, millennials, it's, it's the new thing. And we don't have a smartphone of our own, but we do produce all these components. We produce all this hardware, so why don't we just put it all together, assemble it together, and just create the same thing as Apple. And that's essentially what they did. They created um, a copycat of the iPhone, that was the Galaxy, and that's why Steve Jobs sued them. And, you know, that's why, you know, Apple went into this big lawsuit. Um, the, I mean, like, I, I could get into that on and on, but just, just to sum up, um, it's, it's a myth that Apple won this lawsuit. So Apple actually did win the last case, and it, went, it dragged on for about eight years. But Samsung said that they're going to countersue again for, it was like the seventh or eighth time that they were going to countersue. So Apple and Samsung actually settled on undisclosed terms which means that actually, it, like, even though Apple might have had the upper hand, it was actually a draw. And neither side had actually, uh, like, managed other sides' products off the market. Like, neither side had actual damages from the other side. So basically, like, both sides were just a draw. And uh, the point I'm getting at now is that both sides, Apple versus Samsung, they had their strengths and they had their weaknesses, and neither one could defeat the other because both of them are so well-equipped for the world that we live in with all this technology. The Apple side is creative. It's premium. It's, uh, it, so Apple tends to approach the industry from the top. They create the expensive, you know, the iPhone, the 
the expensive, uh, like the, you know, the something that people think they need at the beginning, but they just create it and put it out there. And then, you know, it's like people just like, they look at it and they say, I need this. And then it catches on. They popularize, you know, ideas. Whereas with Samsung, they tend to approach from the bottom of the internet. They, they tend to come up from a position of, we are the, the factory workers and they to ask Sony, another firm, and we're just going to keep supplying it and get rich from that. Uh-huh. Uh, it, just, it seems to be the, your end is cutting out a little bit. Yeah. Because um, earlier it was fine, but just for like a little bit, it was kind of cutting out. Yeah, yeah, I, I just saw that too. So, where, where should I start again? Uh, it kind of let's see. So, it uh, quite it, uh, mm, there was a few parts where it was cutting out. So, uh, like two or three parts back because a, a couple of parts cut out. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's coming up again. Uh, maybe we should give it a second. Just to see, yeah. it had no issue there, and then now it's come up a couple of times. Maybe we'll see. It is. I mean, it should be fine. Earlier it was good, okay. and just for uh, like a minute. Okay. Uh, yeah. Looks to be good at this time. I don't see any issue now. Cool. All right. So, um, what was the last thing that you caught there? Uh, you kind of threw me off because I was focusing on the cutting out. So nice. the um, the battle, the battle, the the lawsuit between uh, Samsung and Apple, and then how it was back and forth, and then it was a draw, and around there. That was definitely in there, but around after that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so okay, so the battle between Apple and Samsung, it was a draw in the end. Uh, it wasn't something that Apple just simply won, and that was that, and then Samsung was the copycat. What actually happened was that both sides settled in the end, and um, it, it was simply a difference uh, of the strengths and weaknesses of each company, that you know, Apple is a company that it doesn't actually make the phones itself, but it designs them. Um, it has the vision for the phone. Steve Jobs has his idea for what an iPhone should be. He has the, you know, the Mac, the iOS, and the operating, you know, the, like the software. He, he has everything planned down to the design and to the pixel, and then Apple makes the phone. Whereas when you look at Samsung, it's the opposite strategy. The Samsung executives are uh, manufacturers, and they're factory workers at their core. That is their DNA. So... They make the parts, the guts, the semiconductors, the you know the silicon-based components. They make the um, you know the displays. They have a a joint venture with Corning, a major glass company, to make glass. I mean, it's it's just like Samsung is a manufacturer, and they just make everything they can. And so when Apple releases something like an iPhone and it's successful, Samsung looks at that, and their the gut reaction of the executives is. Well, wait a second. Yeah, we're we're making every single part, every single component. I mean, we make everything that assembled together is an iPhone, basically. So why don't we just make our own iPhone? And the natural reaction of that is to you know to copy, to imitate, you know, to to just follow the other guy. And it's a weakness in the Samsung model. But the strength of the Samsung model is that they can execute, they can move fast, and they can say, 
I, you know, like I'm going to make this faster than you can and I'm going to catch up to you and make it better in two years for cheaper. That's where they succeeded. And that's where Samsung succeeded over all these years fighting against Apple. Um, for a long time, the iPhone, after Steve Jobs died in 2011, the iPhone was starting to fall behind. Um, the iPhone was falling behind Samsung. And uh, the iPhone, you know, it, it wasn't innovative. This was in the first half, you know, 2011 to 2015 of the decade. And uh, it was simply that the iPhone was the same thing in each version, each model. It was just, it was not being updated that well, whereas Samsung was putting out new, you know, display technologies, new OLED technologies, new um, you know, new screen sizes, new, like, I mean, they, they were the ones who were putting out, like, the first waterproof or water-resistant phone. I mean, Samsung was a company that was putting out the first features of anyone, whereas Apple was actually catching up to them. So Apple was actually the follower to Samsung for a long time. And this is why, in the end, um, Apple was just not able to argue successfully that Samsung was a company that was copying Apple um, because Samsung could turn it around and say, well, I mean, how are we copying Apple? We made the bigger screens. We, you know, we made the better displays. We made the better hardware. And Apple actually was second to that after Samsung. So um, I think that, you know, in the world now, like we live in a world where I think that people have gotten beyond the, you know, like, I guess the, the conception that Steve Jobs is this brilliant genius who invents things, whereas everyone else is copying Steve Jobs. I think that we've gone on to this, um, this smarter, you know, world where I think that we've, we've, we've realized that, you know, even a guy like Steve Jobs, as smart as he is, he's borrowing ideas. I mean, the iPhone, it was the product of borrowed ideas, and it was the product of, you know, I'm going to take that from Sony and that from BlackBerry and that from Nokia, and I'm going to combine it all together and popularize it. I'm going to make it, you know, a new phone that's basically not that different from what came before it, but it's popular and it's usable. It's a phone for the masses that anyone can just pick up and use. Um, and that's, I think, I think that's why Apple started to lose its steam at the end of this battle. Like Apple lost its cool factor because people started to realize that Apple wasn't inventing stuff. It was popularizing stuff. You know, it was thinking of ways of just making it more usable and more interesting. And that was it. Mm -hmm. It's more of like a marketing thing than the actual content. There's something to that genius concept that we just came back to there that it's sort of, it distances the person describing that from that because then they're saying oh it was out of my hands but actually we all share knowledge that's the only way we figure out things as people so that separation isn't really true in a way apple has done a great job of that kind of marketing that you're describing there one thing that came to mind is you described some of the deals that went on across the years in partnerships with certain well-known figures uh were there any like one or two key moments that changed the trajectory of Samsung based on who they partnered with or a decision that they made? So trajectories, I would say that, um, okay, well, to start off with that question, uh, Apple and Samsung were actually some of the biggest partners going back 
30 years, going back decades. And I don't think many people remember this, but, you know, back when Steve Jobs was actually, uh, you know, making the first Macintosh, making the first, the Apple II computers. And I, I don't know if, um, like, I, I was this age, but I remember I was a, a kid and, you know, I would be like at my elementary school playing with this Apple II computer and there'd be like, you know, it would be like a, a typing game and you have to type something fast enough. And then if you type it fast enough, then, you know, like he, like this guy wouldn't fall into a, a pit of lava and, and, you know, burn up or, or whatever it was. He had, like, I mean, I'm sure you remember those size rolling games that were a lot of fun. So, um, yeah, yeah. Mario teacher, Mario, Dr. Mario, all those games. So, um, yeah. So, yeah, Steve Jobs, he had this idea for the Apple II, the Macintosh in those days. And, uh, it was it was the same as what's been happening today. He said, I have the vision. I got Steve Wozniak, who's a great programmer, software developer, hardware designer. Um, but where do I get the actual components uh, at scale at a reasonable price and at high quality? And, you know, he looked around. Steve Jobs traveled the world. He was in India for a while studying, you know, spirituality. He was in Japan. Um, he was visiting Sony. He met with, the, with Akio Morita, who was the... CEO of Sony, a brilliant, brilliant leader. And actually, Akio Morita, we could get into that another time, but he was the Steve Jobs of his day, and he's the one, I think, who created Steve Jobs as he was. I think that he was the mentor who made Apple what it was. Um, and um, one of the things that Steve Jobs did while he was traveling throughout Asia was that he brought his, his top executives to Korea. And at the time, Korea was extremely poor, it was, um, I guess, by today's standards, it, it had, a, you could say, uh, more GDP than, say, Sudan, but not much more. So a very poor nation, a struggling nation, a nation that wasn't really understood by the world, that was subject to all kinds of terrible, terrible racist attacks. Just terrible. I mean, just like, and I, I say racist um, attacks because you would you would open up a, so Goldfinger is a good example the James Bond novel it's one of the original James Bond novels and uh, you know the so there's the the Korean guy um, Odd Job who you know he throws his top hat and it slices through the the statues and it kills people and all that and so Goldfinger who's the villain says that he chooses Koreans as his henchmen because they're the cruelest and the most evil people in the world. I, and this is, this is the kind of image that Koreans get. They're seen at this period as thugs and corrupt and evil, and you can't trust them. Um, I, I guess maybe you, know, maybe you could trace a similar racist legacy and look at um, you know, maybe uh, you know, Jewish people of Jewish backgrounds in the U.S. Or, or in Germany, and it's like they're, they're seen as, oh, you can't, you know, the bankers, the financiers. Uh, it, it was really throughout a lot of, of Korean history that Koreans were seen in a similar way, and they were denied citizenship in Japan, where a lot of them were actually laborers. And it, it was seen as, um, it was seen as, you know, as Korea is this country that, like, you know, don't trust them. They're, they're poor, they're backwards, um, they're just going to steal your IP. You, you, you just can't trust them. Maybe like, like China today, actually. You know, there's this China hysteria. Uh, don't, don't trust China. China is going to steal your technology, that kind of thing. And um, it was really Steve Jobs who went there during the 1980s, back when this racism was common. And he said, well, wait a second. I'm touring the factory lines of Samsung, this obscure company that nobody really knows about or cares about. And look at this company. Look at what they're doing. Um, they're making more semiconductors. And at 
better quality, better, uh, not just better quality, but cheaper than all the American competitors are doing. And the Americans at this point are going out. Like American semiconductor manufacturers are not the future. It's very clear at this point. And he says, look, I think that Korea and Samsung are the future. So I want to partner with Samsung and I want to work with uh, Samsung as my partner. Like Samsung is going to supply me the displays and the chips. And they actually do enter this partnership for a while. Um, at the beginning, it didn't work out that great because the um, there was an incident where there there were bleeding displays. So like the Macintosh, re like he released the Macintosh and the Samsung displays were at one point bleeding through each other. Um, there were like, like, like it was like, a, I, I don't know what the technical term would be, but there was a flaw in the engineering and it was all messed up. But regardless of that, um, so Lee Byung-chol, who was the founder of Samsung, looked at Steve Jobs and said, you know, this guy, like Steve Jobs, I know that he's the future. He's smart. He's brilliant. And I think he's going to change things. He's going to stand against IBM, and he's going to be the next big thing in technology. Now, what he didn't predict was that Steve Jobs was going to be fired by the board. There was a power struggle with John Scully. Um, no one can predict something like that. But... Steve Jobs returned two decades later and he met with Samsung and he said, like, I remember you, I know who you are, and I have this thing called the iPod. I'm looking for the components. I'm looking for the flash memory in particular. And it was Samsung's innovations that allowed the Apple gadgets to happen, the, the iPod in particular, and then the iPhone. Without Samsung, the iPhone would not have happened as it did, and it might have been delayed. It might not have happened at all. But the Samsung engineers are that brilliant and that smart that they can, you know, at the time when there's just, there, there's not really the right technology for this, they figured out a way to take a VCR chip, like, or, or, or sorry, not a VCR, a, a cable box. Like they, they picked up a cable box, looked at the chip and said, this is the best thing that we can use for the iPhone. And they managed to re-engineer it for the first iPhone. And that's what made the iPhone possible. So these are two companies that have been tied at the hip. They're so just tethered together. They're, you, you can't separate them. They need each other, and yet they hate each other. They sue each other. They're competing with each other. And that's one of the things that I, I just really wanted to write this book because I just thought that that story by itself was so fascinating that two of the biggest giants can tie each other together, can say, hey, bud, like, I'm your bud, and then go at it for a decade, each other mm -hmm. there's something something to be said for that i've spoken before about how i don't know if i've mentioned it too clearly but like how people on the same level there will be disagreements and agreements but you're on the same level when you're at that point because the people you're not actually having any of that with that's different uh, categories of individuals now which is very cool to look at people should always look at who are you arguing with or working with because they're likely somewhere on your same plane of thinking one thing I like to always do is if you were describing a message about Samsung or what you have taken from understanding about them that you would tell to all people of the earth as a point from your book, what might that point be? I think the biggest point from my book is that like America is not the world. Um, just remember that 
you know, the average guy who, you know, you go through business school, you get your MBA or maybe business undergrad, um, you're coming out of a school that's the product of a society and the product of a country. And what you're learning is tailored for America or for the West, you know, like maybe you can go to Germany and it'll be similar. But remember that as an international businessman, cultures and societies are different everywhere. They have different histories, different origins, languages, um, different social structures and social circles. They have so much that you as a, as a young business graduate or maybe even an experienced businessman just simply cannot see by nature of growing up in one country or, um, you know, in America, if you're an immigrant, uh, you know, like even growing up as an immigrant in America, um, you know, I mean, maybe you can see one society where you came from, but that doesn't mean that you can see Korea or Japan or Mongolia or wherever, Saudi Arabia. There's so much, I mean, the, the world out there is just the market, the cultures, the societies, it's so complicated and there's just so much that, you know, even I as this, you know, I've been a foreign correspondent for 12 years now and I, I go into an interview, you know, I go in to talk to people and it, I just can't, um, there, there's just so much that catches me by surprise still. I mean, like I'm in Turkey right now, I'm a Middle Eastern correspondent and, you know, the Middle East has all these wars and you know you, you open the la times or the new york times you can read about the the bombings the wars the the conflicts like all this stuff that's been going on here for decades and decades and some would argue would some would say centuries i mean just millennia of conflict um it, it's like you know like even though i i read about it in the news and you know like i i try to do my work here there's always so much more that i can't see and i think that one of the lessons of my book is that if you're in business or whatever field you're in, um, you know, pick up a book about Samsung or, you know, it doesn't have to be Samsung. It could be whatever. Pick up a book about another culture outside your own and read it. And just think about how much of that in there is, is just stuff that totally catches you by surprise. Like if you were given a job by your boss and they said, you know, go to India and do this or that, or, you know, work with this Indian migrant who just came from New Delhi, like, would you know any of this at all if you didn't read that book? So um, that's really the goal with, you know, my book is that I, you know, I, I was reading a lot of these Silicon Valley books about Uber, Facebook, and whatever, and Apple, and I was thinking, like, why isn't there something out there about a major company that's not American? And what, the deeper I got into it and the more I learned about it, I was just constantly surprised, and I realized how little I actually knew about Korea despite living in Korea and reporting on Korea and even learning Korean. There's so much that, you know, it's just... You can't see it and you have to just expand your horizons and read a lot and talk to people and just try to learn about the world out there because the world is not America. Mm -hmm. There are more things to reach for and then we can also improve our brain plasticity maybe slightly by expanding beyond what we have done. Yeah, exactly. I would like to thank you for having been on this episode of the show and it would be great to have you back on again in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me, Armin, and happy to come on. So shoot me a message sometime, man. You know it. And we yeah. are out.